To the man, the Lord God said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree of which I had forbidden you to eat, cursed shall be the ground because of you. In toil shall you eat its yield all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to you as you eat of the plants of the field. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 18. It is 10,000 B.C. Early modern humans have spread across the world. Not only have they branched out from their most likely original homelands in East Africa to fill that entire continent, they have also occupied every corner of Europe and Asia and have even filled the Americas with diverse cultures and populations. The only continent left uninhabited by them is Antarctica, and there is no reason to believe that our ancestors are not aware of it at this point. Man has already likely been a seafarer already for tens of thousands of years. He may not be able to cross oceans, but he knows how to build boats and make short sea crossings. In fact, even his hominid ancestors, such as Homo erectus, may have been able to do so millions of years before, judging from remains found in Indonesia today. Though European explorers in the 15th and later centuries would get credit for discovering the Americas, Australia, and many islands in the Pacific, The truth is that early modern humans had already long known virtually every nook and cranny of the earth. They had just not recorded their discoveries for posterity. Every piece of ground, every mountaintop, every wooded copse, every stretch of arid desert had already been perused, utilized, and or discarded by our ancestors. No, man stands atop the world now in 10,000 BC. He has not built any cities. He still lives, as we would term it today, hand to mouth. His everyday existence depends heavily on what is within walking range of his campsite. He lives in small bands that may have only a couple dozen members, though some bands may contain as many as a few hundred, all belonging to what we might term a clan today, a group of extended family members. He wears clothes made from animal skins, sewn together with bone needles that he himself or a family member may have manufactured by hand. In fact, everything is made by the human hand. Clothes, tools, jewelry, weapons. And everything is made from animal skins, or furs, or bones, or from wood and stone. There is no metallurgy yet. But still, early modern humans have become the apex predator of the entire planet. A few thousand years before this, they were still making homes from mammoth bones. If there are no such homes now at 10,000 B.C., It is because the mammoths have nearly disappeared. Scientists believe that, at this juncture, there may have still been some scattered mammoth populations in harder-to-reach areas of the world, but where humans congregated in large numbers, the mammoths are all gone. Still available for our big-game-hunting ancestors are the oryx. Modern cows are descended from these huge beasts. A full-grown Mesolithic man's head reaches the shoulder of these ancient cattle. We have not yet domesticated this animal, and it roams wild across Europe and the Near East. In fact, the last remnant of this species will not die until the 17th century AD in Eastern Europe. Speaking of Europe, it is becoming denser with humans now. Though many animal species are going extinct, the fauna and flora of Europe are flourishing as the ice sheets recede. 
the planet warms and the oceans rise. Some former lands are going underwater with the rising sea levels, but more are being revealed as the glaciers retreat, and early modern humans, hardy nomads all, are eager to explore these new lands. But another change is coming into the lives of these early modern humans. As the biblical passage notes, they will begin to toil in the ground. As the big game dies out, men and women begin to experiment with alternate methods of securing nutrition. They still roam about, following animal herds and the changing supplies of fruits and nuts that grow in different areas of Eurasia and the Near East. But during this period, they will make their first attempts at agriculture and domestication. They do not up and abandon the hunter-gatherer lifestyle in one swift move and settle into villages surrounded by expansive farm fields. Instead, over the course of thousands of years, they make adjustments in their methods of securing nutrition that lead them, step by step, toward a way of life completely distinct from that of their Paleolithic ancestors. This is the Mesolithic. The term Mesolithic is somewhat controversial. There is a widely accepted division of the human prehistoric past into three ages, the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, and the Iron Age. The Stone Age has furthermore been divided, since 1865, into two segments, the Paleolithic and the Neolithic. The Paleolithic was the Old Stone Age, the most distant past of our human history, whereas the Neolithic was that period immediately prior to the to the establishment of cities and the beginning of recorded history. The Paleolithic itself was also split up into Lower, Middle, and Upper Paleolithic. The Lower Paleolithic corresponded to the lowest or oldest portions of a dig at a specific site. The Upper Paleolithic was the period of the Old Stone Age closest to the present. The Neolithic then, in this old scheme, followed after the Upper Paleolithic, and there was no recognized period between them. By the mid-20th century, though, researchers began to recognize a distinct transitional period from the Upper Paleolithic into the Neolithic, a period lasting several thousand years and in which men produced tools, textiles, and art of increasing sophistication and lived differently than both their Paleolithic ancestors and their Neolithic descendants. The period is referred to by some as the Epipaleolithic, referring to the layer in a dig that is immediately on top of the Paleolithic, but before the Neolithic. For the purposes of this podcast, I will stick to the term Mesolithic and accept it without discussion of any remaining controversy about its use. However, it should be noted that the Mesolithic occurred at different times in different regions of the world. In some regions, it is not recognized to have occurred at all. Furthermore, there is great overlap with the two periods of the Stone Age which bookend it. Again, for the purposes of this podcast, in which we are focused primarily on the history of the West and initially in the Near East, we will think of the Mesolithic as beginning sometime around the year 15,000 BC and lasting until 5,000 BC. While this podcast tries to present things in chronological order, the scientific community that studies the Stone Age often views things through the lens of the Neolithic. For that reason, the Mesolithic is frequently seen as something not yet Neolithic, rather than viewed strictly as a development with its foundation in the Paleolithic. Yet I think it is important to see the Mesolithic in this latter fashion. 
Mesolithic man did not know that the Neolithic was coming, and he did not look forward to it. The developments and advances of the Mesolithic did not have the Neolithic in mind. Instead, all progress during this transition was spurred by already existing issues with man's immediate and changing environment. What is this transition? What specifically made anthropologists cast away a long-held and useful arrangement of the Stone Age in exchange for this new and difficult-to-define period? There is no doubt, especially in looking at the evidence found in Europe and the Near East, that man's way of life begins to change during this period, without immediately taking on the characteristics of a Neolithic lifestyle. Paleolithic man used large tools and weapons, they were designed, most likely, to take down the big game that was available and to turn their hides and bones into useful materials. This was discussed in a previous podcast. It is interesting to think about the common preconception that human technological advancement in the prehistoric past occurred as a natural progression, that people eagerly sought to invent and produce improved devices to better their lives. But the technological progress of the Mesolithic, producing smaller, more sophisticated tools and hunting weapons, could just as easily be the result of need, need created by the changing landscape and the fluctuating wildlife population around them as the climate shifted into a warmer stage at the end of the last glacial maximum. Already, Homo sapiens of the later Paleolithic period had some pretty sophisticated hunting weaponry. The atlatl is an example. This spear-throwing device allowed hunters to fling their spears at speeds nearing 100 miles an hour. But Mesolithic man, in Europe anyway, would develop the bow and arrow, a weaponry system much more complicated to create and much more difficult to use as well, but which allowed for greater range and accuracy that might have been necessary in hunting smaller game. During this Mesolithic period, evidence found around Europe and the Near East show early modern humans began targeting smaller game with more frequency as the larger animal herds thinned and finally disappeared. They also began to gather vegetation with more earnestness. One common way to view the Mesolithic, already discussed, is as a period in which many of the characteristics of the Neolithic were developed in bits and pieces until they accumulated and became a set of customs and technology known as the Neolithic package. Archaeological evidence shows that some regions and communities achieved these developments by themselves and or received them from other regions and incorporated them into their own culture slowly over many centuries. There is also evidence of Mesolithic communities existing alongside Neolithic peoples for long periods until they, too, adopted the Neolithic package in one generation. Basically, during the Mesolithic period, especially in Europe and the Near East, early modern humans began to adapt to the changing world around them. With big game, such as woolly mammoths and mastodons, increasingly rare until they were all gone, Men changed their tools and weapons to better target newer and smaller game. While there is plenty of evidence that earlier Paleolithic man also hunted small game, he preferred to hunt big game. And this makes sense. As long as the big game was there for the taking, it was a better payoff for your efforts. A clan of related men could work together to track and kill something like a woolly mammoth, and their families could live for a long time off of the meat from that one kill while the women and children gathered nuts, berries, and other vegetation to garnish their meals. Only when such a resource was exhausted, or otherwise not available, would anyone try tracking and killing something else, 
something which might require more accuracy and effort and result in less payoff, such as a common deer. Mesolithic man went through the same evolution as it became more difficult to lead a traditional life. He had to focus on hunting different animals and gathering the same resources more intensively and also began to consider other vegetables' food sources. During the Mesolithic, early modern humans will begin consuming wild cereals, such as wheat and barley in the Near East, and rice in East Asia. Eventually, as will be discussed in the Neolithic episode, humans will begin cultivating these wild cereals to ensure their harvest each year, and then slip gradually into agriculture, producing the yield of the ground by the sweat of their brow. There are some preconceptions about Mesolithic man that should be cleared up. Mentioned previously is the idea that hunter-gatherers transitioned to a more sedentary agricultural way of life because it was naturally perceived to be more advantageous, that hunter-gatherers were poor, starving specimens of humanity that turned to agriculture to save them from a brutish, resource-impoverished way of life. Nothing could be further from the truth. Mesolithic humans were healthy, strong, and intelligent. They had to be in order to live as they did, making their own clothes and tools, living off the land, tracking game, sleeping in temporary huts and shelters that they built themselves, and just generally surviving in the wilderness. Physically, they would most likely have been superior specimens to the average agriculturalist humans of later eras who got less exercise and less animal protein in their diet. Again, we see that the reason for transitioning into an agricultural lifestyle, which virtually every human culture did over the course of time, was not so straightforward. It was not simply an embrace of progress or lifestyle improvement, though this latter motivation may have come into play later in areas where Neolithic and Mesolithic communities live side by side. No, Mesolithic man essentially slid into the Neolithic, that is, into a way of life increasingly dependent on the cultivation of crops and the domestication of animals by way of necessity. We can only speculate, but perhaps the idea of settling down, of not moving around so much, of securing a reliable source of food in the form of grain or herds of domesticated beasts, perhaps this idea simply attracted men and women of that time as a less taxing existence might attract us today, as it attracts people who grow older and desire to leave behind more active occupations for something more sedentary, something safer. There would have been many other potential attractions to increase the amount of time spent in one place as well. Children could be more safely born and cared for while staying in one place. If you have raised a child, imagine having to do so again while constantly on the move. If given a viable option to remain in one place while you raised the child, you would probably have taken that opportunity. But still, we do not know for certain why this transition occurred at all. During the Mesolithic, Early modern humans in Europe and the Near East began to experiment with interruptions to their nomadic way of life, with archaeological evidence showing some communities spending longer and longer in one particular area, perhaps making forays into agriculture and protecting lands that provided steady crops of fruits and grains. Perhaps they made the first attempts to trap herds of live game in box canyons and other geographical cul-de-sacs and live off periodically in much more easily hunted animals. Perhaps the transition into the Neolithic also simply became the path of least resistance for some communities as they began to appreciate the increased security of a periodically sedentary life and started to consider the benefits of just remaining in one place.
We have to remember, when we begin to theorize about Mesolithic man, that we know very little to begin with, and that our speculations could easily be completely off. For example, it was easy to imagine not long ago that Mesolithic man knew very few people, that he lived in a small world in terms of human society, and was closed off from others outside his immediate clan through some kind of natural xenophobia as he ranged across Europe and the Near East, following herds of game and the seasonally changing supply of herbs, fruits, and nuts that grew in various locations. But there is increasing evidence that early modern humans, long before they settled down into more sedentary, Neolithic communities, were already communicating, cooperating, with a much larger world. For example, there is a TED Talk on YouTube about symbols and signs found across Europe that date back to the Mesolithic, and even tens of thousands of years earlier. These symbols are carved into stones around Western Eurasia and do not appear to be expressions of art, as most cave paintings most likely were. Instead, they seem to be a way of communicating between different groups of people, since the same symbols are found spread across thousands of miles and are used consistently for thousands of years. No one yet knows what any of these symbols mean, and they are definitely not writing as we think of it. There is no evidence that any actual sentences with grammar and syntax are being written. Instead, these symbols may have been guides or warnings. They could be territorial markings, clan insignia, route markers, even signposts telling travelers what lay ahead, such as a water supply. If you watch the video, it is interesting to note that one of these ancient symbols, carved into rocks by our ancestors tens of thousands of years ago, is the pound or hashtag symbol. It is not known why people used these markings back then. Presumably, it was not to launch Twitter campaigns. There is another recent discovery that definitely forced modern researchers to reimagine their perception of Mesolithic life. I refer now to the finding of Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe is a location in modern-day Turkey, the peninsula which will more frequently be referred to in later podcasts as Anatolia, or Asia Minor. In the 1990s, an archaeological researcher began to uncover what was originally thought to be something from the Byzantine era, when Anatolia was part of the Eastern Roman Empire. The dig revealed numerous pillars, carved from stone, and adorned with an array of designs that appear to be depictions of animals. Massive stone pillars, such as those found at Stonehenge and here at Gobekli Tepe, are known as megaliths. These megaliths are common across Europe and in other locations, such as Easter Island in the Pacific. What is so unique and surprising about the megaliths found at Gobekli Tepe is their age. Excavators date the first erection of the pillars to have occurred prior to 9000 BC, over 11,000 years ago. This was initially incredible because the earliest cities, as will be discussed in a later podcast, are not known to have appeared until sometime after 4000 BC, farther south in Mesopotamia. Even the first known large and relatively unorganized settlements of humans, known as proto-cities, do not show up in the archaeological record until around 7000 BC. So the discovery of Gobekli Tepe forces us to redefine the lifestyle of Mesolithic man. I should note that I refer to the builders as Mesolithic, but as frequently happens with this classification of the human timeline, many would label the builders as early Neolithic. It really becomes an issue of semantics. The fact is that the builders, as far as we can tell, were hunter-gatherers, 
people who had not yet settled down into agriculture or pastoralism, yet who came together to build this site. And, of course, it is very unlikely that Gobekli Tepe is the only such site, or the oldest. It is merely the one that we have uncovered. A Europe and Near East that is probably littered already with megaliths by the 10th millennium BC was and remains shocking to imagine. Previously, the perception had been that this period was still characterized by roving bands of early modern humans foraging and tracking game, not yet being drawn into larger communities by the needs of agriculture. And it was previously common, as already explained, to imagine people of this time and this lifestyle as living sort of xenophobic lives, strictly within their clans, looking with suspicion on strangers. Yet it is also obvious that Gobekli Tepe was not the product of a single band of nomadic humans. It must have required the cooperation of numerous such bands, and might have attracted the adoration of many more. I say adoration because it is likely that this site was a religious shrine of some sort. The builders carved figures of various animals into them, giving us, in the modern age, a sort of picture of a Mesolithic zoo. There are also statues found in the area, such as one that is quite clearly a statue of a wild boar. Other animals depicted in carvings or statues are not so easy to identify. Presumably, Mesolithic people gathered here to engage in some sort of religious act related to their hunting activities. One can only imagine that this site served as a location in which various tribes satisfied whatever type of periodic religious relationship they sought to continue. There are no signs that anyone lived permanently here. There are no signs of agricultural work. Like Stonehenge, it appears to have been a place of visitation, a pilgrimage destination, rather than the location of any kind of permanent Mesolithic community. But Stonehenge wasn't built until 3000 BC, at the earliest, that was 6,000 years after Gobekli Tepe. The religious nature of Gobekli Tepe surprises many researchers in the field also because religion, particularly formal, organized religion, has always been perceived as a creation of city life and the stratification of the economic classes that live in them. It shocked many experts to see that humans possessed such religious inspiration in this time period that they would undergo great sacrifices to erect a structure related to their communion with the spiritual world. How and why would such people, hunter-gatherer types, dedicate so much effort to a task that would not result in the acquisition of food, water, or some other resource? We will not have the answer to the mystery of Gobekli Tepe anytime soon, and it is likely that the origin and purpose of this structure will remain mysterious for all time. What type of interaction with the divine did Mesolithic men and women have here? Was it mere adoration? Was there sacrifice, propitiation of angry gods, praise and thanksgiving for successful hunts? Did they petition the gods for plentiful game and rains to make the plants grow? Did they tell ancient stories? Was there prophecy, priesthood, ritual? Here is an enigma more difficult to decipher than the pyramids or the Sphinx of Egypt. Our purpose in discussing Gobekli Tepe here is not really to understand the purpose of the pillars, that is a job for full-time archaeologists, but rather to demonstrate that Mesolithic people, our ancestors, were not the simple, brutish creatures that they are so often made out to be in popular imagination. I think the one thing that we can learn about these ancestors is that these Homo sapiens, these early modern humans, were people just like us, even though they lived so long ago. They used language, 
They crafted highly complex tools, engaged in architecture. They made art. Though they did not, how, did not know how to write, they communicated graphically. Like us, they probably worried about the future. They told stories of the past. They probably experienced the full range of emotions that we do now. They conversed with one another about things both profound and mundane, and they longed to understand, amid the travails of their brief lives, the mystery that is their own existence. In the next episode, we will examine how Mesolithic humans came to develop and adopt the set of practices, customs, and technologies known as the Neolithic package. And we will continue down this long and winding road to Western civilization. Until then, thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.